0: Well, now we have sound. I'm glad everyone's uh, weighing in and telling me that there's no sound. I guess I had it muted. I did that once before. Sorry about that, guys. I don't know why it was muted. Uh, all right. Hopefully, you can hear me now, and let me know in the comment section if uh, you can. Uh, everyone's still saying they can't hear me, but I'm pretty sure there's a delay. So, let me know if um, if you can hear me. Okay. So, uh, everything I just said. <laughs> I uh, I don't think this is going to be a long episode. I. Uh, I've just been busy the last few days yesterday was my birthday I was smoking ribs all day and getting my yard prepared and uh, today I'm actually smoking brisket because I'm having another get together uh, well I'm I'm having a get together with the family tonight um, and uh, so I the first time I've ever smoked brisket I've smoked ribs a, a few times now but um, so so that's going on and uh, uh, Monday I had a um uh, I guess a project event a, a I was installing event and that took like all day event in the kitchen so so yeah all that to say not that you needed to know all of that um, I haven't been able to uh, follow everything uh, extremely closely and my wife's actually asking me should we uh, have the oven turned up so high right now because I, I have the brisket finishing in there um, so I'm telling her turn it down if she thinks it's too high I, I saw the recipe I was looking at online it said after you smoke it you wrap it in foil, um, and then you put. Now, if, if you have the fat and like the, the ends, you 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 take all of that, um, you and then you wrap it in that. Basically, you make a paste from that, wrap it in that, or some like uh, beef broth or something, and then it, it moistens it more. You put it in the oven. Um, I just use butter because I didn't have uh, access to the, the the other stuff. But um, anyway, that's what we're doing right now. Uh, okay, so. <laughs> In other news, in, in the actual conversation that matters here, um, I want to start off by just uh, reminding everyone, really quick announcement, and then we'll get to the the substance of this. Um, there is a men's retreat coming up in September, and I would just encourage everyone, if you can make it, uh, try to come. It's uh, the Overcoming Evil Men's Conference, overcomingevilconference.com will get you there, uh, and then you can check out, uh, there's two tracks. And, um, I, I made this just an explanation for people why there's two tracks there's it's three days. The whole conference is three days. And part of the reason I did that was that we had people coming from as far South as Georgia and as far West as I, I think like uh, Ohio or no, we had someone actually from, uh, uh, Wisconsin. And I just thought, you know, having them there for two days for a two day conference for like a Friday night into a Sunday morning, man, that's just not a lot. And so I I created an extra day. (laughs) So you come in Thursday night instead, Thursday afternoon, I should say, and you leave uh, Sunday around lunchtime and uh, your meals are provided during this whole time. We actually have um, uh, chefs that are trained at the culinary who are doing this. It's not your typical camp food. It's really good. Uh, We have a a better facility than we did last year. And uh, it's a beautiful lake. It, It is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It is hard for some people to get to, but it's worth it when you get there. And if you haven't been there, you'll understand when you see it. Um, So it's in Speculator, New York, at Camp of the Woods, and uh, the second track is more just kind of like for locals, I guess, who do um, they they don't want to take off Friday or they can't take off Friday, so it's for those who just have the weekend, uh, and so it's cheaper. So it's two hundred and eighteen dollars for two days, and for three days it's uh, three hundred and thirty-four. And I would just highly recommend. This is actually a really good price, and I've we've kept it this low as long as we can because we want as many people to come as possible this is a different kind of setting than most of your um, conferences that you would go to where you don't have access to these men. These men are going to be there the entire time. Uh, The speakers will all be there and you can talk to them. You can hang out with them. You can go to a campfire, a hike, go out on a boat. You you can just lounge around. Uh, I mean, it's, it's all going to be good and it's during the peak fall. So this is, if you haven't seen a mountain, New York fall, it is pristine and beautiful. And, And so, uh, that's, what's going on, uh, on September 21st through 24th, and you'll have more than enough access to, to any of these men. If you want to ask them questions or, uh, let them know you share share your story. I'm actually looking forward to hearing a lot of the stories from people who come. I always enjoy that. Um, you can go uh, to the website and there's a little video of last year and what it looked like and, um, and some more information on the speakers and stuff. So. Um, yeah, any questions, honestly, you could put them in the comments for this video and I'll try to check them out and see if I can answer any other questions, but wanted to plug that, uh, for moving forward. All right. Let's talk about, uh, the subject for today, the subjects, um, I want, it's kind of a news roundup. So, um, I'm going to give you a, a few little things that people have sent me or brought to my attention over the last few days that I thought were kind of interesting or important. And um, it it will all kind of jive together at the end (laughs) towards we're going to work towards a conclusion here. But um, but I want to start off with something more, I I guess I would say, political. So this is a um, interesting story from The Intercept. House Republicans accidentally released a trove of damning covid documents. New documents show a scientist calling a lab leak highly unlikely, highly likely after drafting a paper claiming the opposite. Well, that's interesting. Uh, House Republicans, the story says, uh, on the subcommittee probing the origin of the COVID-19 virus appear to have inadvertently released a trove of new documents related to their investigation that shed light on deliberations among the scientists who drafted the key paper in February and March of 2020. The paper published in Nature Medicine on March 17th, 2020 was titled The Proximal Origin of SARS-CoV-2 and played a key role in creating a public impression of a scientific uh, consensus that the virus had emerged naturally in a Chinese wet market. You remember this, uh, that this was the consensus opinion, the gospel coalition. I remember Joe Carter, I think it was published an article at the time. Uh, and, and of course the secular media outlets were doing the same thing, but he was basically saying that it, it, we shouldn't be entertaining conspiracy theories on lab leak theories. And, and the idea that this came out of a lab because uh, that's, that's, I guess that's dangerous. <laughs> it was, it was a threat somehow. Well, well, Now we're finding out because 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 now now it's pretty accepted that this was a lab leak. Well, the interesting thing about this is it's not necessarily a recent like it's not that we found new information that confirmed it over time, even though we I'm sure we did. It was more that there was a political agenda going on there. There were people at the highest levels uh, looking at this whole issue at the time saying, it's a it's a lab leak in their private correspondences with one another and yet what did they actually put out there they put out there the story that it wasn't that it wasn't they covered up stuff and um so anyway this story is out in the intercept i'm not going to read the whole story for you it is fascinating though and just just a little window into uh and it's got screenshots actually um uh from private communications uh, it's a it's a little window into Uh, what happens at the highest levels of our government and the deception um, that you can find there now um, moving on to the 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 subject of the video we're going to spend most of our time which is the moors and their legacy and the moors i i decided to put moors because beth moore and russell moore i would say both of their legacies are still present in the southern baptist convention even though they both left and um one of the things I was, I was just going to sort of bridge here from from just pointing this COVID thing out to um, the Moore's legacy is, you know, the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, has been one of the major. It's been one of the major issues in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's no doubt about it. Like that that's, I think, what probably motivates con- conservatives, political conservatives in the convention, uh, especially is and, and even some theological conservatives. There's a lot of overlap there. Um, but what motivates them to try to reform the SBC or to leave the SBC is a lot of stuff coming out of the ERLC, at least for years. It was now it's more, um, I think the abuse stuff has probably overshadowed the ERLC to some extent, but the ERLC is still, it's still churning away. It's still doing its thing. And even without Russell Moore there, Brent Leatherwood, who leads it now is pretty much carrying on the tradition that Russell, the, the legacy that Russell Moore left for him. So anyway, I, I just wanted to point out, there is an article on the ERLC webpage. This is from, I guess, Russell Moore might, was he still there in 2021? I think he was, or maybe he had just left. Um, there is from Jason Thacker. There's this article, how Christians can combat the dangerous reality of COVID-19 disinformation. Now, it doesn't mention the lab leak theory here. It's more vague. And a lot of their articles, I've noticed, are, tend to be very generic, vague, general, Um, you don't, you can't really sink your teeth into, but, but it, it, by the end of the article, somehow you're moved to reject the lab leak theory, even if it doesn't mention that. Um, and so they, they did, they they did go out there and try to, uh, one one of the things actually in this is interesting is, um, we must, it says we must begin to seek out information and insight from sources other than social media, right? So, So so it says, although traditional sources of news are often ideologically biased as well, these news organizations and periodicals do have some level of accountability that is often absent of random users on these platforms. And so I I just find it interesting. This is what the ERLC gave us in 2021. Don't trust social media. Trust trust the experts, because even if they're not perfect, they get it right more because there's accountability there. Well, we just saw in this particular article, what accountability? What accountability is really there? The House Republicans accidentally released a trove of damning COVID documents accidentally uh in 2023 and this this all happened at the ground level in 2020 and we were not told until now. Um what, what accountability, right? Is is the question. Uh it's you're probably actually better off in some ways if you and you have to have a discerning eye for these things. But going to social media sometimes like like I'll give you an example. Like when when something happens, like the French uh, riots a few weeks ago, where do you go to find out information? I think most of us are going to Twitter now. Uh, maybe we wouldn't have before Elon Musk took it over, took it over. And we realize that there's deception there. There's a lot of deception. But we also realize there's certain accounts that seem to be more trustworthy. And if we can identify those accounts and follow those accounts, and they're giving us on the ground video and primary sources, we trust that more than we trust MSNBC or even Fox News. Um, I think that's that's all happening. I think in real time, we're all approaching that, and I think this scares people who are in more established per, uh, news professions. Uh, not that the ERLC is a news outlet, but they, I think, they think of themselves as as uh, a think tank that uh, the, 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 And there's overlap with news outlets in that, in, in a way that they they comment on the news and they're a they're a reputable source. So anyway, um, so, so l- let's let's see. What do I want to do first? JD Greer or this thread? Um, Let's do this thread because <laughs> we're on the ERLC. So um, two issues we're going to talk about, and this is just for the benefit of Southern Baptists who are still in the convention more so than anyone else. If you're not a Southern Baptist and you say I don't really care what the ERLC is doing. That that's fine. I mean, I, I think, I think there's some a- application here. Hopefully, for wherever you're engaged, whether that's a denomination or Christian ministry. But, but this is really more for the Southern Baptists who are still in the denomination and listening. So they're just aware this, this is this kind of stuff that's going on. Um, Pastor Sean Mathis put out this interesting thread on Twitter, and I just want to read this to you. This is about the Nashville uh, victim, uh, Nashville massacre uh, victims. Um. A GoFundMe was set up for the Nashville massacre victim, Mark Hill's burial. He was a custodian for Covenant, which is the school that, of course, this um, individual who happened to be transgender, uh, who shot up this Christian school, this is this is the person who was a custodian there. Also, another victim had a GoFundMe uh, while one well-known father at Covenant will leave no stone unturned, suppressing the manifesto. Okay, so it's saying there's there's two funerals here for victims of this that they, they couldn't Actually, pay for it. They needed money. Hill, 61, was a beloved custodian at the school, police said, and a father of seven children, known as Big Mike to students. Hill was a member of the uh, facilities kitchen staff, according to the school website. Hill loved to cook and spend time with his family, according to a family statement obtained by CNN. He had 14 grandchildren. We would like to thank the Nashville community for all the continued thoughts and prayers as we grieve and try to grasp any sense of understanding of why this happened. We continue to ask for support. The statement said. We pray for covenant school and are so grateful that Michael was beloved by the faculty and students who filled him with joy for 14 years. Nashville parents set up a GoFundMe page to help support his his family and their funeral expenses. Thus reporting on covenant families paying for the burial of the murderers of their children caught my attention last Saturday, Pastor Mathis says. So here's, this is the interesting thing. So so just to establish what's going on here, you have victims of the shooting who have a GoFundMe set up, right? Where does the ERLC and it's not maybe the whole organization, maybe it's Brent Leatherwood, but wh- where, where does Brent Leatherwood, who's in charge of the ERLC, where does he put his wh- where does he put his emphasis, his time, his concern? Where where is that directed? Pastor Mathis says one of the things that stunned me. He, he's quoting here uh, from um, a, a news article at CBN. One of the things that stunned me to learn was that the Covenant families had pulled together and paid for a funeral of Audrey Hale, the shooter the shooter one of the things that stunned me so, so, so he said he, he goes through this story further research shows that another victim nine-year-old william kinney was also a gofundme um uh set up by friends to cover funeral costs also had one um and it, it gives a description of him brent leatherwood president of the ethics and religious liberty commission has children at covenant he has kids there while bemoaning our culture of anger and animosity there was no comment from him on the attacker. Self-identifying as a male, so he doesn't even this is the person who's the head of the ethics and religious liberty commission. You'd think if anything would affect that particular, you know, religious liberty ethics, you, you'd kind of be like, Hey, was this possibly was this motivated by a hatred for Christianity because they don't accept transgenderism? Or could that even be a possibility? Maybe we should look into this. Is this um and that, now? Didn't we just recently have another issue like this in, in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken? So anyway, and so I know the Lord is revealing to me all the ways he wants this commission and our SBC churches, so he's talking about the ERLC, to be a voice for the voiceless, to speak up for the marginalized, to truly be a servant of the widow, the orphan, and the vulnerable. And Brotherwood said, because each day when I see the three little survivors of the Covenant school shooting in my home, I know that I cannot be quiet and cannot stand idly by uh, while our culture tears itself apart. But you should know, Leatherwood added, the parents and families have asked our attorneys to leave no stone unturned as we pursue our objectives to keep all these writings out of the public domain. So literally, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention is doing everything in their power to make sure that you don't know the, the motives of uh, self-described Audrey Hale. You don't know what this was really about. Um <laughs> And, and I mean, it, it just—it strikes—it's so weird to me. It strikes me as so weird. Um, the, the things that they choose to be really concerned over, and like leaving, there's no stone unturned. And meanwhile, you have victims of the shooting who are wa- wanting to know what did my, what what did they die for? What did they die for? Um. The brother of the Covenant custodian, uh, Reggie Hill, wants the manifesto released. release. He'll express confusion about why this particular shooter's writings haven't been released to help give closure to a tragic situation. I mean, it stands to reason. I mean, equal weights and measures. It's like all the other ones get released, right? Just about. And especially if it's like any racial, any like narrative they can use to promote the idea that it's white supremacy or something, that they release those. He said he's been experiencing added grief and stress from all the rumors and myths floating around for me personally. He said, not knowing the shooter's true motives leaves a large void in my heart and in my brother's story. Leatherwood used the tragedy to promote more gun laws. Remember that uh, red flag laws in the state of Tennessee. Again, there was no comment about the butcher's unstable state and easy access to guns. Uh, using the T word will block this post. So true is often <laughs> used instead. Such people are highly unstable. As a former news and opinion writer for now Axios, I keep up on certain events such as the Nashville Massacre uh, as an attack upon God's people and his little children is a tragedy I'll never forget. End of thread. Well, um, the priority of RLC is just way out. It's just way out there. Um, it's I, I don't even know what to say. Like, this is right in their backyard. So it, the question is, like, do you want your if you're in the Southern Baptist Convention, do you really want your offerings going to the ERLC? It's, it's been the question for years, but it's still the question because this is exactly the way Russell Moore would react to something like this. He would signal about we got to love the marginalized and all this, and then he would use it to somehow promote something on the left, some kind of like gun legislation, some kind of uh, well, let's not blame the tr- transgender or, or they let's not like attribute some of this to the mental instability caused by transgenderism let's let's that's not being civil like that this is the same kind of approach russell moore would take and it's it's like this is the organization you're actually funding literally to deal with these kinds of issues you had one job right you had <laughs> one job uh and being aggressive on something like this would would you'd think be like a no-brainer like this is the, the, we, we are seeing an increase in this mental instability caused by encouraging some of the, these gender and sexual anarchy. And that should something like this should be a, a wake up call and a reminder that that these things are are not good, that these things are dangerous. It, it's not the gun that's the dangerous thing. It's the person using it. And the person using it was obviously um, had a problem. Uh, there was evil there that was that, that was manifested. Um, you're not allowed to say that. You don't hear that language coming from people like Brent Leatherwood, though. Okay. Uh, the next thing I wanted to share with you is is Philip Bethencourt. Now I think he's a pastor in Texas. He was he he was affiliated. I don't know if he still is affiliated with the ERLC. He may be, but he was very close to Russell Moore. In fact, Russell Moore's last book, he I think, dedicated it to two people. One of them was Philip Bethencourt. Um, but he 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 puts out this tweet commenting on this article by J.D. Greer. And he says, this article by J.D. Greer lays out some of the deep complexity and important issues about the SBC. The things he raises gives us a clear picture of why we need to appoint a task force to help us get this right, uh, like the one Dr. James Merritt proposed. And so if you remember back to the convention in June, um, a bunch of ex-presidents of the SBC, J.D. Greer was one of them, decided that they were going to, in the wake of Rick Warren's failure, to secure uh, and establish women pastors in the SBC they were going to create another opportunity for the Rick Warren faction i think to remain and to hold out hope and i don't think people saw it as this but but that's what it, i think that's essentially what it was that we need to uh we need to relook at this issue of what the credentials committee can do uh to uh, assess whether a church is in friendly cooperation with the convention or not and of course, Michael Laws' amendment passed, which basically said uh, it, it added to an already existing list, a pre-existing list that said sexual abuse and racism could get you kicked out. And then now it's saying, and if you have women pastors, that could get you kicked out, right? So you'd think for an organization that that has been since uh, since 2000 that has been in their their bylaws. I mean, it, it is uh, well, it, it's part of the ba- their doctrinal statement. I should say the Baptist Faith and Message, Message 2000. This should not be. Very controversial, but you have, and, and I said this at the time. You have this kind of split going on, and, and this is exactly, I think, what I predicted right before the Southern Baptist Convention. I said the left in the convention is going to split. You're going to have guys like Rick Warren, and I predicted it would. He, he Rick Warren probably would fail. I didn't realize he would fail as as big as he did. I did not realize that. I, th- I thought it might be. It, it was possibly going to be close. But I I figured Rick Warren wasn't going to get there. I mean, it's just too too much too fast for an organization that has been, um, I would say, very um, be- very good on this issue. At least, like like if you notice the the issues like Me Too and critical race theory, Southern Baptist Convention has been terrible on terrible. But on issues that they fought previous battles on in the 1980s, and women pastors was one of them, inerrancy, those kind they're, re- they're they tend to be better on those things. Uh, they you can't contradict uh things that were fought for and gained in the 1980s so women pastors has been enshrined or, or opposition to women pastors has been pretty enshrined and rick warren just he hit that wall uh now that wall is being chipped away though and it's being chipped away by people like jd greer and this is the split you got people like rick warren saying i oh, well I'll take my ball and go home and some of the really hardcore egalitarians are, are with him on that some of them might be sticking around but i think some of them are, are leaving and so that, that they make up the left end of, you know, acceptability and which is a a push of the Overton window, right? Um, that, that they're even taken somewhat seriously, but you have now the JD Greer's of the world and the James Merritt's of the world and Ed Litton's of the world. They're all pushing kind of the same thing through a different route, through an indirect route. And they are, they are the acceptable, like, like they don't, they're not super left. They're more, they're more moderate. They're more, They'll even tell you they're conservative, and um, and so they can they know how to talk to Southern Baptists in such a way that um, they they can keep a saddleback in the convention, right? Uh, if they if they approach it in the right way with the right words. So um, Brent Leatherwood, really, or not Brent Le- Leatherwood? Sorry, that was uh, Philip Bethencourt. Really, you know, admiring this, and uh, and I think there was a number of other Southern Baptists uh, who agreed with jd Greer. i think even james merritt came out and was agreeing and so so there there's this there's this clarion call here that jd greer is putting out there this is a signal for southern baptists this is he's signaling the direction that he's gonna go and i'd say with him you're probably talking um because i think you you have you the al moeller which remember a few years ago al moeller was seen as more on the left he was he was moderate to left because because of his big uh push for the me too stuff his big um His uh, basically somewhat of an endorsement of critical race theory, at least aspects of it, and certainly hiring people who taught aspects of it at his seminary, Um, the homosexual orientation issue. There there was a couple things that really put him into this position of being more on the left, veering left. And he was rejected in 2021, right? Mike Stone, uh, almost. I mean, it it was close. Uh, Mike Stone actually beat though al moeller and that that was a surprise to some people well al moeller i think is getting a revitalization now he is now becoming the conservative he's positioning himself as the conservative champion here and so this is the new i think things are shifting in a way you have a split on the left and you have a split on the right so you have like the rick warren folks that like the heavy egalitarians who honestly should they don't belong in the sbc but some of them are still in there. Then you have the J.D. Greer's who are pushing the needle left, but they say they're conservative. And then you have the Al Mohler group who now is make is probably the more powerful group in the supposed conservatives, even though a few years ago he, he, he wasn't. He, he wouldn't have been considered a conservative by actual conservatives in the convention. Uh, and, and and then you have um, on the other side, I guess you have like a younger kind of like uh, like the American reformer crowd. The abolitionist crowd. There's kind of an alliance there. Uh, those guys, I'd say, founders is probably somewhat connected to this. Um, I think maybe tangentially, CBN is is connected, to, is somewhat connected to. But there there's kind of like a, a more aggressive kind of right wing kind of position. And and so you have in the center, you'd have JD Greer. I'd say, and Al Moeller. Those are those are your your options if you're in the Southern Baptist Convention right now for forging ahead. And JD Greer is signaling. What I think most of the elites, because I think most of the elites are with Greer, are going to be probably pushing, and and this would I would think this would probably include Danny Aiken, um, and, and of course all the presidents who uh, were supporting the um, the amendment by James Merritt uh, in June, um, you know I don't know I, I don't know to what extent, but but I think a lot of the professors at the seminaries probably would be they'd be with J D Greer he is. He is influential, even though he's not the president of the Southern Baptist Convention anymore. And this is what he wrote. A time to come together, the unintended effects of the law amendment, the unintended effects of the law amendment. In 2010, Nancy Pelosi urged Congress to pass all 828 pages of Obamacare regulations just minutes after it had been posted before anyone had a chance to read it. Let's just pass it, she said, and then we'll figure out what's in it. As the ensuing chaos surrounding Obamacare demonstrated, that's not usually the wisest approach. On June 14th, Southern Baptists approved a by two thirds majority the law amendment, which specifically says that churches would only be in friendly cooperation if they appoint, affirm or employ only men as a pastor of any kind. This constitutional amendment is not in effect yet. It must be ratified a second year in a row in Indianapolis by a two thirds majority. So remember that Southern Baptists, you're not out of the woods yet on this issue. Many Southern Baptists voted for the law amendment because they rightfully believe the office of pastor is limited to men and wanted an opportunity to affirm that, especially after hearing disheartening examples of a few prominent evangelical voices who regard complementarianism to be backward, archaic, and misogynistic. Now, I I just need to let people know this. You have to say these things, even still in the Southern Baptist Convention, you have to say you're complementarian. You have to tip your hat to that, right? So everyone's going to say they're complementarian. Uh, the, the word is now being rendered almost meaningless because of how many people are saying it and the wide range that now this uh, encapsulates. While supportive of the desire to affirm complementarianism, I so he's he's very supportive of that. Very supportive. I want to suggest that this amendment is not the way to do that. Hmm. And that it will have uh deli- man. I can never say this word uh, deleterious. There we go. Effects far beyond what most Southern Baptists intend as evidenced by this open letter by our national African-American fellowship who are pleading with us to slow down and consider the implications of what we're doing. So, so, so when, when you can't play the, uh, the gender card, play the race card, right? This is a, a, an open letter. I'm not going to read it, but there's a number of historic African-American churches, I I guess that are in the Southern Baptist convention who are saying, look, this is a problem for us. Like we will have to leave the convention under this amendment if this passes next year. So he's using that as pretext to say we need to rethink this Uh, constitutional concerns not theological ones here we go constitutional concerns not theological ones so he's going to reframe and categorize this whole issue i want to be clear i don't oppose this amendment for theological reasons but constitutional ones advocates of the amendment have expressed a desire to see support of complementarianism clarified and strengthened in our convention and i support that this is the wrong mechanism for that i don't oppose this amendment because i have any desire to see the influence of complementarianism weakened in our convention, nor am I demurring on the strength of the biblical case for complementarianism. I share the same convictions as those who authored the amendment. I believe that there are only two offices in the church, pastors and deacons. I believe that God has reserved the role uh, for men uh, an application of the principle of male headship he wove into creation. At the Summit Church, while we celebrate many women in our leadership, we have no female pastors or elders. I believe complementarianism is essential to Baptist faith and practice, a defining feature of our convention, and I'm grateful our Baptist faith message makes that clear. I thought a few years ago that there was a whole like issue about this, like that at Summit Church, they had women preaching to mixed audiences. They just didn't call them pastors or, or Sunday schools or something. Anyway, I and that would actually be consistent with the kinder, gentler complementarianism that Danny Aiken wants uh, The this like we We just don't give them the office of pastor, but they can still fulfill the function in some ways. I do oppose this amendment because it binds the hands of the credentials committee from differentiating between those churches who have committed to use Al Mohler's words, a grievous error in this case, rejecting complementarianism. So by the way, he's identifying who their main opponent is. And I think they, they want that to, they want Moeller to be the main opponent. I believe. Um, that's actually good for them. If, if you can make him the, the representative of the right. And of course um, the credentials com, or the, uh, executive committee for the Southern Baptist convention actually appointed Al Mohler to be there to represent them at the convention. So, so this is already happening. Um, it's just, they're not pointing to people with a conservative track record here, uh, who who opposed the me too stuff, who opposed the, the, uh, CRT stuff, who opposed the soft peddling of homosexuality. They're picking someone who has, who's good in this one area, but really didn't do well in those others. Uh, which is is fascinating to me uh, that that this is the way but but Al moeller has some credibility he 's uh, a known commodity so he 's identifying Moeller. moeller 's going to be the hurdle for these guys um, but I think it 's better for them to do it because this is moeller actually has a lot in common with them on these other issues and um, and, and i think he's he 's been proven before that he 's defeatable So um, those, I believe, simply have a nomenclature problem. Since the conservative resurgence, we have sought to be united on primary things, salvation by faith, bodily resurrection, inerrancy, and secondary things, complementarianism, believers, baptism, regenerate church membership. This amendment, however, makes conformity on a tertiary thing, right? Nomenclature of an office, a standard for fellowship. Now here, I got to ask a question. What about racism and the abuse issue? Um, are those, are those primary or secondary issues? Like, where do those fit in? Especially the racism thing. I mean, if you, uh, let's say you agree with all the, uh, the, the doctrines, the fundamental doctrines, but yet you think that, um, certain races are inferior in their mental capacity or something, right? You know, let's say there's someone who believes that out there. I, I don't think there's many people like that, but, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are, I'm just saying like, I don't think they're the majority at all of Southern Baptist or even a plurality. But the few who might be out there in the Southern Baptist Convention, what would you how would you frame that issue? Right. Because because that's that's an issue that already no one said anything about that. J.D. Greer supported it. That's an issue that uh, you can expel someone from the Southern Baptist Convention for. Um, I mean, and it doesn't even seem to have to to be that like there doesn't have to be a lot of proof even doesn't have to be like that, like. It, it can be something, a minor infraction that leads someone to believe this way. I'm only saying that because I think there was a church what was in New Jersey, I believe. Um, I think it was not this previous convention, but the one before that got kicked out. And you tried to go look for the evidence and you, could, you couldn't you could find anything. And, and there was all this question about it. I don't know if we ever figured out why they were kicked out for racial insensitivity. But but that's been elevated to the point of I guess that's on par with inerrancy, I guess. I mean, that's ridiculous on a theological, on a theological uh, frame, I'm not saying I agree with that at all, but I'm saying that's ridiculous to elevate that to the point of, Hey, that's like denying the virgin birth or something. No, it's not. And there's many Christians throughout history. We'd have a problem who believe things that would probably get them kicked out of the Southern Baptist convention today for racial insensitivity. And yet they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They had the core doctrines down, right? They were just products of their times and, um, they didn't have the same experiences and they didn't, um, and, and in some ways they just weren't egalitarian, right? So anyway, Greer doesn't have a problem with that, but he does somehow on the issue of women pastors, which is more clear in, like, it, it's, it's, it's obvious in scripture. We Baptists have a history of ecclesiastical office confusion that we should be honest about. Many of us grew up in Baptist churches where the board of deacons functioned as the elders. Interestingly, in most of these churches, the deacons could not be women. Baptist instincts formed by scripture were the, that only men can serve as governing elders. So when deacons serve like elders, it may, so he says he's getting wrapped up in all this minutia. Um, and saying basically like he's placing the blame on Southern Baptist. We kind of messed up in the past. We've confused issues and we just, we need to make sure that this is the damage we've done. And now we're going to punish people because they're the victims of the damage we've done. That's what he's doing. I mean, they did, they, he runs this play. The, the people like him run this play all the time, uh, on, on everything. Like, it's just like, it, they, they know how to take responsibility for even, even things like, you know, the normalization of homosexuality and stuff. It's like, well, if I remember Tim Keller did this podcast once, he's like, well, religious right, basically they, they bashed homosexuals and they did it all wrong. And we're reaping the consequences of that. And it's like, guys, you, you'll never be able to call evil evil because you you're, you're wanting to accept blame for the evil that's out there. You want to somehow say it's not really them. It's you. Um, these candidates are often, let's see, I don't I don't want to get into this anymore. Um, the history of our article three amendments, perhaps it'll be helpful to consider why Southern Baptists have previously chosen to add specific items for exclusion in article three. I mentioned two of them, um, 2019 and subsequent meetings in 2021, we strengthened our stance on two issues over racism and inconsistency with our posture toward abuse. If the credentials committee determines a church has violated. One of these things, the committee then recommends that the church be regarded as not in friendly cooperation, racism and abuse each have their own standalone enumeration. And in the, so they're very like, it's funny how those things are singled out in the list of what constitutes friendly cooperation. They actually go further than the Baptist faith message uh, in ways that I, uh, among others find completely appropriate. We wanted to make clear our stance on these issues since they are briefly mentioned. Uh, let's see. Um, So (laughs) let's see. So, so they want to strengthen their positions on, on these issues. The law amendment places churches with a woman on staff. They call pastor in that same category. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So, so he just assumes that, that these things are level 10 threats that need to be outlined, that need to be strengthened and shored up. And we seem to do that, but look, the, the whole, the women pastor thing, not really. That's not a level 10 threat. Don't you think this is an opportunity? Let's say you have a church that calls staff members pastors, but not really, right? They're not really pastors, but they call them pastors. Well, that's a great opportunity to correct them, right? If we, and if we've messed up so bad over the course of decades and confused positions in the church by calling deacons elders or elders deacons, then uh, maybe we have an opportunity to correct that by confronting it, <laughs> by confronting it, not doing this like, like, we just can't touch that issue now because uh, we have been so wrong in the past. Like, they don't seem to have a problem saying like, well, you know, we were we were wrong in the past on racism or we were wrong in the past on abuse. Uh, I guess we can't touch those issues. No, they're like level 10 threat, red alert, go after those issues. So we're binding our credentials committee, he says. We're binding them and We're we're forcing them in this uncomfortable position. Um, and I don't want to read the rest of this article because I think we've already gotten the gist. Uh, the Saddleback case proves we have what we need. Uh, the reality is that we already have all that we need to settle secondary disagreements by removing churches that embrace egalitarianism. So he's saying, look, we already removed Saddleback and Fern Creek. Why do we need more? Why do we need more? Like we, we already have these, these standards, right? Uh, this is an, 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 interesting, I think I pointed this out in March. I wasn't the only one to point this out. Uh, I think it wasn't was it March, February or March when, um, we first heard about this Mike law amendment And how the credentials committee or the executive committee at that time treated him and kind of snubbed him and how they snubbed his amendment. And then they made this weird move of like, we're going to kick Saddleback out of the convention. And I remember thinking like, there's something political going on here. Like, that doesn't make any sense. If they're really committed to complementarianism, as they say, they won't have a problem with the law amendment. They'll say, yeah, we need this language to be shored up. This is great. If there's that many churches in the convention that have women pastors or pastor people on staff, they're calling pastor who are women, then that's not in accordance with our doctrine. We should do something about it. Right. But they, they decided to do this symbolic gesture of like, okay, we'll do this high profile, like go after Saddleback, the obvious low hanging fruit. And, but then we'll kind of like make sure that we don't go too aggressive. Um, and so he, so J.D. Greer is calling it an Acts 15 moment. The church was at a crisis point in Acts 15, finding gospel unity. Uh, and they appointed a group to come up with a solution that seemed good to them. They recognized that the unity of the church was a serious matter, and they wanted to take time to get it right. Uh, he says, he stood with several people, former SBC presidents, uh, to call for our own Acts 15 moment. So man, he's just putting that veneer of, godliness upon this pious act of boldly stepping up to the microphones in their privileged position as presidents James Merritt, Brian White, Steve Gaines, Fred Luter, Ed Litton, JD Greer, and speaking truth to power by saying we need to come together in an Acts 15 moment. We want to be doctrinally faithful, but we don't want to change the basis of our cooperation that has been our genius for over a century. I came from, and he starts giving his personal story. Let's skip that. If we continue it down this road, we might become a convention that spreads, uh, spends its time focused on who is in and who is out, instead of on the best ways to reach our communities to glorify Jesus. This is hysterical. This is absolutely hysterical. You could apply this to the other issues. He could, racism. Let's let's take it right. The the racism issue that's honestly I think pretty vaguely defined in their Article Three. You could say, that's why I said you could like remove a church for the slightest infraction. J.D. Greer is passionate about that, right? How come you couldn't apply this logic to that and say, well, if we continue down this road, we're going to be making distinctions about who is in and who is out instead of the best ways to reach our communities and glorify Jesus. You have to have standards if you're going to glorify. If you don't have standards, then you, 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 you people don't even know what Southern Baptist means anymore. It actually hampers your ability to glorify Jesus. Uh, it, it creates more confusion, the kind of confusion he says he wants to get away from. If you want a harpinger of that, just take a look at the Southern Baptist social media feeds right now. Right, right. Is this what we want our convention to be about? I'm tired of my, like you're part of it, J.D. Greer. You're part of it. I'm tired of micromanaging churches. I want to be about the Great Commission. There are too many people on their way to hell for us. To, okay, so basically the people who are concerned about women pastors are apparently, this is the same thing that, that James Merritt did about critical race theory a few years ago at the convention. If the people who are concerned about that would follow the great commission the world would be saved but they're just too busy fighting online about critical race theory um he's saying the same thing if, if you're too too concerned about fighting for, against women pastors and keeping doctrinal integrity then uh you know you're you're somehow against or taking resources away from those who could be getting saved right now and it's like man you know both of them are important both of them are important doctrinal integrity is important um, once you have, once you ordain women as pastors in a lot of these denominations, okay. And, and again, I do actually think this is an important issue, but I do think that, I mean, there's brothers I have in Christ who are in especially like Pentecostal denominations where they, they do have this. And it's not like the SBC where they have it on their bylaws, but I do think that you can see a general trend with when you adopt this egalitarianism, it leads to other things. The homosexual stuff is generally right around the corner and, and I'm not saying in every, situation but most of the time like it leads because you use the same logic it's like well we have these passages but uh, what's the overarching theme of scripture i guess it's love so we don't have to obey these passages because we're obeying the command to love or something like that okay um he's saying many of our sisters are deeply discouraged so also you're making women cry right this is the other thing you're making you're making the women upset by doing this because they're faithful and and you're confusing them and um <laughs> And then let's see. Let's skip through the end here. He says. So so he says. Uh, as our he references our African American brothers and sisters again. So it's like so, so so there's all these classes that you don't care about if you care too much about women pastors uh, being in the convention and wanting to see them not in the convention. You are against uh, the the sisters we have in the convention who are uh, deeply troubled by this. You are against African American churches historically who are going to leave the convention over this, and you are against sinners who need the gospel. So there you go. That's how terrible you are, (laughs) according to J.D. Greer. Now, J.D. Greer, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that J.D. Greer is signaling what they're all is is signaling what they're all saying, what they're all thinking uh, as far as the people on that more leftward side. So anyway, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. There's there's kind of some controversies brewing on Twitter, but I don't think I want to weigh in on them right now, to be honest with you. I will say this. I'll say one thing because I have a tweet that's kind of going, I think, mini viral right now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there seems to be a controversy right now over whether or not men should allow their, w- their wives to read theological books without them, without their, I guess, uh, knowledge or something like that. Like, do you trust your wife to go read theological books? And I don't want to get into the whole weigh in on everything concerning this. Cause there, there's, we'd have to look at a number of different situations, I think. And, and every situation is going to be a little different, but I would say this men actually have a responsibility to lead. And one of those things that one of the things involved in leading is protecting the weaker vessel. I don't think that means just weaker physically. I think that um, and I don't think it means women are stupid at all. In fact, I think women are very smart. In fact, they my wife understands things. Sometimes I don't understand. She's insights I don't sometimes have. And I think it's because of the way God's wired her. It's not that I can't you know, access those things I'm not saying that there's a standpoint theory thing going on here. Um, it's not that I can't understand, but I think she's naturally more, um, predisposed to want to nurture and she has this maternal instinct and it's a beautiful thing God's given her, but that also there's, there's, that's why it's good when there's a husband around and, or the woman's younger, a father around, uh, or if neither of those things, at least a pastor around to temper that with reality with, with, Hey, that person says they're a victim, your heart's going out to them, but they might not be. Or maybe they're a victim, but you can't really do much about it. And so you're getting sucked into this this movement that you can't really, it, it's just not for you. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's not, your, your maternal instincts are cranking up at full steam here, but you need someone who's not going to have those instincts as strongly to look at the situation a little more objectively sometimes, right? That's just one example of it. Um, let's see, uh, my wife, sometimes though, will see people in need where I won't see them because she has that, right? And so she'll point it out. And I think that's so helpful. So, so we compliment each other. Um, I want to say this. I've heard the story many times. Most, it, I don't want to say most, but a lot of the churches that go social justice or woke, it starts in the women's book study. It starts in the women's book study. It's a woman's book study and they get together and they're reading color of compromise. They're reading, you know, some other book that's that's woke. They're, uh, reading, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of the names of some of the prominent books that were used most often. Um, now I'm drawing a blank, even though I've written about a lot of these, but some book that's influenced by critical race theory. And that's where it starts. It starts with the women. They have this like maternal instinct that's kicks in. It's like, we got to help these victims. And they're not thinking through it necessarily in a way that um, men are more wired to think through it, perhaps. So, all that to say, I think if, if when pastors have more oversight over those things, or at least knowledge, husbands have knowledge. Too, of, of what's going on, you can kind of, you, 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 you can avoid some of these pitfalls. And, and so that's all I want to say about it. I know it's raging on Twitter right now, this whole argument, but I, I just think that there is, there is wisdom in a husband's, at least knowing kind of what wives are, are, I think that's part of like being their spiritual, a, a spiritual leader, knowing what they're digesting. And, and recommending things I don't, with my, I'll just tell you, I'll be transparent. I'll tell you what I do with my wife. Um, I do not tell my wife what to read. I don't, uh, I mean, there, there are times maybe I'll be like, let's, let's read this passage, but I don't like when, with her personal reading, she, she can read what she wants. Um, and I, and I have a trust with her. I think that she generally picks good things to read. However, I do have conversations with her and I do ask her about things and I do want to know kind of what she's consuming. In general, and I haven't had any problems with my wife in this th- this way. I haven't found she's reading something that's damaging or something to her or to the family or anything. Um, but but I, I do want to make sure that I do know what's going on j- just to have a relationship, but also because my job is to protect her. and um, and there have been times. I'll say this. it hasn't been books, but on social media, there's been times when she's been influenced by things and I've had to go have a discussion with her about it. And I've told her, do not follow that person on social media anymore, please. I'm nice about it, but don't follow that person. They're giving you bad information and it's it's not helpful for you. Or, you know, don't please don't don't go on Facebook as much as you're going on Facebook or something like that. Because these videos or these articles or these posts, they're not helping you. I think that that is a husband's job. All right. And I think a wife, by the way, my wife has come to me and expressed concerns sometimes with things that I might be. Uh, looking at for, you know, that might not be helping me usually things in the news that are discouraging too much. It's like, John, you got, you gotta, you gotta go outside, get a breath of fresh air, right? That's because we're guys We're like, you know, in battle mode. So, all right. I just wanted to weigh on to that real quick. Um, go to the comment section. Oh man, this is really nice. Violet. Thank you so much. Uh, happy birthday, John, she says, and she, she gave $10 in a super chat. That's very nice. Thank you so much. Very kind of you. Um, let's see lots of good comments here i gotta actually run i got family coming in right now and i gotta take the brisket out of the oven but uh scott says a pastor should know what each sunday school or bible study is reading or studying yeah the shepherds that's how you cut you like what, what, what are you feeding the sheep right <laughs> it's kind of like the shepherd analogy there it makes a lot of sense um Nicholas says, uh, it depends on the woman. I know some women who can be trusted to decide what theological books to read. I know someone who need protection in that regard. And I, and again, I think there's levels of this. That's why every situation is different, right? I think in general though, the the real question here is where is, what, where, what is the husband's role? Is the husband supposed to protect? And, um, and if that's the case, then, then it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with a husband saying, you know what, I'd rather have you not read that right now or, read it with me or, you know, to protect you. Cause I love you. I know this is so politically incorrect. Isn't it like hampering her freedom or something? It's just, I don't know with my wife and I though, this works kind of naturally and organically, and we sharpen each other and it, we don't run into issues over this stuff really. But I, but if there are couples, I'm sure who do. And, um, so, um, okay, I need to run, <laughs> but Hey, I appreciate everyone who, uh, who hopped on the live chat with me. God bless. Uh, More coming. I'm hoping I can get a podcast out tomorrow. I might not be able to. I got a doctor's thing in the morning and I'm going to be gone for a while. So we'll see if I can get to it. If not, though, I'll definitely um, come back on. uh, I'll try to put something out on Saturday. So you'll have a podcast over the weekend. God bless. Bye now.